uh, of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. If you remember the very first verse of Gospel of Mark, the very verse that we preached on Easter Sunday, uh, Mark introduces his Gospel with these words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark, uh, little known fact, uh, he got an A-plus in English 101, or Composition 101, I should say. He wrote wrote Aramaic and and Hebrew and Greek. But he passed uh, 101 because he starts his gospel with a thesis, and then he writes the rest of his gospel to prove that thesis. So he here tells us that he's going to be telling the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it helps us to remember that the word Christ there is not Jesus' last name. It is the title Messiah, the title Lord, King, Savior that the, uh, Jesus is in, in, inherits. He, he, he becomes, he shows himself as. And so Christ is a title and then Son of God is, is who he is. And so if you read through the Gospel of Mark... You don't hear the word Christ very often, unless you're listening to the demons. Uh, The word Christ is not spoken by a single human person in the Gospel of Mark until you get to the passage that we're in today. And it, it, it functions as the climax, where Mark is basically saying the first half of my thesis, that the disciples know who Jesus is as the Christ is demonstrated. And then we'll read the next half of the Gospel of Mark. And when Jesus is on the cross will be the first time that a human looks at Jesus and says, truly you are the Son of God. And so Mark 1.1 is this thesis statement that all of the narrative of the Gospel of Mark is slowly and progressively presenting and proving to us as we go along. And so today, we are going to be seeing this aha moment of the disciples recognizing that Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ. And in in presenting this discovery to us, Mark, the author, places in front of us the most important question for all of us to answer. And that question is, who do you say Jesus is? There is no more important question than how we answer that particular statement. Who do you say that I am? Now, we might look at that question as a primarily evangelistic question. Something that we ask people who are quote-unquote non-believers. People who are not in the church. That that's our focus. That we want to bring those conversations to lost people so that they come to a place where we can ask them, who do you say that Jesus is? But I, I contend that the question, who do you say that Jesus is, is more than just an evangelistic question. It is a relationship question. This was a question that Jesus posed to the disciples as they are getting to know him, as they are working at living in and living out a relationship centered in him. And so the question, who do you say that he is, is not a question I'm asking you to say, look back on your past and tell me you've answered this question. Though I hope that you all have, at some point in your past, answered the question. What I'm really wanting to focus on is are you answering this question today 
repeatedly? Are you answering this question with, with pursuit of Jesus and a relationship that is living and active? Kind of a, a way to, 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 to come into this topic. So it's, it's more than 20 years ago, uh, I was saved. Uh, I experienced a dramatic conversion moment uh, while I was taking a shower in the middle of November of 2001. And I answered the question, who do you say that he is? I said, you are the Christ, and I need you for the forgiveness of sins. You are my Lord and my Savior. And I left that shower knowing that my entire life was to be for Jesus. And I charged into life as a, as a disciple, wanting to read the word, wanting to share the gospel, wanting to grow in my knowledge, and to commit myself to ministry. But then uh, uh, about 10, 12 years down the road from, from that conversion, I was serving as an elder at, my, my previous, at one of my previous churches, and uh, we had this small group discussion time. And the pastor gave all of us at our tables uh, a question. And the question was, uh, if you could uh, increase your devotion life, or if you could be more effective in your ministry, which would you rather have? And I was at a table with other elders, and we all answered the question that we would like to be more effective in ministry. I said that too. And I recognized almost as soon as I said it how far I have fallen away just by gradual degrees from this earnest pursuit of knowing him. That I had gotten to a place somehow, even as an elder, that I was separating effective ministry with closeness in relationship. And so I want to ask you, are you familiar with that experience of your, your heat and your zeal for knowing Jesus cooling off? Are you familiar with that Curiosity for Jesus kind of getting flat. You know, if, if, if you've been married for a few years, the, 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 the moments of euphoria that you have in that relationship, they, they aren't like they were in the first year or two of marriage. The same thing happens to every relationship when we are not investing in knowing who we are in a relationship with. And so I, I want you to think, what is your relationship with Jesus? Even if you pursued him 24-7, you still hardly know him. And so the real question that I have, the key question, who do you say that he is? As we celebrate a baptism today, this is, this is the, 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 a great picture of what is happening in our passage. Jesse is going to profess his faith in Jesus publicly. But the most important thing that I want Jesse to recognize is that this is just one time. The rest of your life is about professing Jesus.
and knowing Jesus. So as we look at this passage, I want to orient us on on the map. Jesus is taking his disciples up to uh, an area called Caesarea Philippi. I think there should be another slide coming up. Yeah, there we go. So we, we start at the Sea of Galilee, and this passage has Jesus taking his disciples way north to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it is a dramatic northern climb to this place, which is a, a Gentile area. It is not part of, of Israel. And this is the northernmost point that Jesus takes his disciples. And it is actually uh, creates a hinge-like uh, moment geographically for the book. Because as soon as he gets up to Caesarea Philippi and has the moment with, with the disciples, he immediately heads south and he is headed straight for Jerusalem. So this is a, a, a point of turning from one part of ministry to the other part of ministry. The, 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 the Galilean ministry to the ministry to the cross, which is what the second half of the book is about. And what Jesus is doing on this journey, on this long journey, is focusing on his disciples' understanding of who he is. This passage starts with the disciples showing a lot of dimness regarding who Jesus is. But at the end of this passage, we're going to see that they finally have real insight. And and, and as we see this as a a trek, as a journey for the disciples, I want us to recognize that this trek of knowing Jesus is the greatest adventure that you can possibly be on. It doesn't even matter how long you've been on this adventure. There is always more. This adventure of knowing Jesus should always be growing should always be transforming us, should always be pushing us forward. So what characterizes the person who knows Jesus? As we go through the passage today, we're going to see that there are four characteristics that are going to be demonstrated that characterize the person who knows Jesus. And my desire is that as we leave this message, that these are characteristics that you are constantly developing The first characteristic that that I want us to to dwell upon is a heart that is kept humble. A heart that is kept humble. Our passage begins with uh, some of our familiar friends, the Pharisees. Pharisees, uh, we meet them in the the Gospels and they're kind of the bad boys of the New Testament. They're always uh, working uh, to, to trip Jesus up or to test Jesus and and they have a bad reputation as we've, we've uh, gotten to know them only as Pharisees in the New Testament. But the reality is the Pharisees were some of the most devout, the most committed, the most religiously scrupulous, the most uh, uh, upstanding of people that you could possibly imagine in Israel. They were good examples. You, you, if, if you were uh, looking at resumes for um, uh, for, for uh Sunday school teachers, if they said they were a Pharisee, you'd be like, this one's going to be a good one. Uh, They have devoted their life to Scripture. Um, But there is something about the Pharisees that constantly keeps them on the outside. And what keeps them on the outside is that they have a a commitment to unbelief. They come to Jesus at the beginning of our, our passage, and they say that they want a sign. To see who Jesus is. Now, 
that's a, a bizarre question. Why are the disciples or the, the Pharisees asking for a sign? I mean, hasn't, hasn't Jesus been just doing sign after sign after sign all through uh, the Gospel of Mark? And yet the Pharisees say that they want a sign. It appears that what the Pharisees are asking for is they want God to do a sign, not Jesus to do a sign, but God to do a sign to authenticate who Jesus is. And so this is one more thing that they are holding out belief because they do not think that the signs that they have seen up to this point are godly enough signs, are are signs that are clear enough of who Jesus is. And so the Pharisees, after these eight chapters of Jesus exercising demons, healing people, teaching authoritatively, are still saying, prove yourself to us. Prove yourself to us, right? The problem is that the Pharisees, as good and and righteous and upstanding as they are, are hard-hearted in their unbelief. They have become hard-hearted towards Jesus, meaning that they refuse to believe him. I mean, it's, it's fair to ask the question, what, what do they need to see? What could Jesus possibly show them? What could possibly happen for these Pharisees to say, now I am satisfied? The Pharisees have committed to a mentality that that we would call skepticism, right? Skepticism. And we've we've all come across skepticism. We've, We've all participated in skepticism. But here's the problem with skepticism. It is never satisfied. Whatever we are skeptical about, there is no amount of evidence or refutation or demonstration that ever satisfies us. It is truly a bottomless pit of skepticism. Let me give you uh, an example. Uh, There is a a long-going debate about who is the greatest basketball of all time. And I don't know why my boys are not in the service. Is there a reason for that? (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, this was for them. There is this long-standing argument in the Edwards household of who is the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? Uh, Raise your hands if you say Michael Jordan, all right? Raise your hands if you think LeBron James, right? So a lot fewer for LeBron James, even though LeBron James has some incredible statistics, and you can make a strong argument that LeBron James has exceeded Michael Jordan. But let me tell you, if you are committed to Michael Jordan, as some of my boys are in our household, there is nothing that you can say. There is no list of arguments. There is no presentation of facts. There is no reel of tape that you can run in front of someone who is committed to Michael Jordan as the grace of all time that would ever make them think LeBron James should even be considered in the debate. This is skepticism. Once we have committed to a belief, we become so hard-hearted towards the other opinion that we really cannot move. It is almost outside of our will. We are like, we are like cement that ch- turns into concrete, right? That's what happens when skepticism takes hold and we have committed ourselves to prove-it-to-me mentality, right? There is never enough proof. So what does Jesus do with these Pharisees and their question to prove to us who you are? He walks away. 
He walks away. He just leaves them. And I think that that statement, Jesus left them, is meant to be read with a lot of drama. Jesus doesn't engage. He doesn't play this game. I, I, I think Jesus is, is acting similar, or maybe I shouldn't say Jesus is acting similar, but, but Jesus in this passage is, is like uh, Psalm 18, 25 to 27. A passage we have on the screen. We are told about God. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. This passage is a fascinating passage because it basically says that God will not play games with you. Jesus will not play your game of prove yourself to me. If if you want to come to Jesus with a crooked heart, then he will remain mysterious to you. He will remain unknowable to you. He will allow you to make whatever corrupt opinion about him that you want because he is not interested in in playing the game of satisfying your skepticism. But if you come to Jesus with a heart that is pure, with a heart that loves mercy, with a heart that wants to be blameless, you will find a Jesus who wants to show you mercy who wants to to wash you in in forgiveness, who wants to give you uh, uh, what you desire. He will present himself as most beautiful to people who come to him in humility. So my question, if you are meeting a Jesus that seems so difficult, so unbelievable, so unlovable, so untrustworthy, Are you coming to him with a humble heart? Because he may just be reflecting back what you are showing to him. You see, Jesus is not going to play games. If you make faith a game, Jesus won't play. And so Jesus gets into the boat. And he, he, he starts talking to his disciples. Verse 15, uh, he says to them, uh, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is obviously looking at the condition of the Pharisees and he is looking now at his disciples and saying, watch out that you don't become like them. Watch out that the leaven, the, the way of life, the, the teaching, the manner of the Pharisees and the household of Herod does not get a foothold in you. And he calls this, this uh, uh, attitude of the Pharisees and the household of Herod, he calls it leaven. And leaven is such an interesting substance. Leaven is yeast. It's this, it's this uh, substance that when you put it into a ball of dough, just by nature, it invades and works itself through every part of the lump until the whole lump is leavened. That's just the way that the leaven and the yeast work in the bread. 
And he is telling the disciples, he is warning them, and he is warning them in the strongest of language to not allow uh, this, this small, uh, even the smallest amount of the skepticism and the unbelief of the Pharisees into your heart. Because it will act like leaven acts in a, in a lump of dough. It will eventually take hold and control everything. The cement will become concrete. And so this is a warning that he places in front of his disciples. And we need to pay attention to this warning today. Because we live in a world that has so much information and so many different voices and so many uh, people who are able to speak into our lives and our faith. We have more access to more information and more perspectives And we have less controls on the quality of that information and the the trustworthiness of the people publishing that information than than ever before. We are looking at a society that is fracturing because there are so many lies out there being presented so powerfully that we are breaking apart in, in so many different issues. And the same is happening with faith. There is a, a, a popular activity called deconstruction. And deconstruction, I'm, I'm not going to get into, uh, into it with a lot of depth, but deconstruction is something that is, is, is a, a dangerous path. There are certainly things about our faith that should be questioned and, and, and parts of our faith need to be reformed. We have inherited some, uh, uh, some falseness from, from the generations and there's always time for reformation to, to get back to the pure faith. But there is also a temptation to start throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we commit ourselves to a skepticism towards our faith. And so this warning that Jesus has about not allowing this leaven of the Pharisees and the household of Herod, this unbelief into your heart is a call for you to be very vigilant with how you deal with your doubts. Doubts are not bad. I'm not scolding anyone for having doubts. But if you allow your doubts to harden your heart from pursuing the truth versus taking your doubts to understand the truth better, then you are, in a, in a sense, allowing the leaven of unbelief to take over. How do you stay humble-hearted? Humble-hearted, I believe, is, is, is demonstrated for us, the way to the humble heart is demonstrated for us in Psalm 1. I want to read all of Psalm 1. It's, it's short. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see the path of of leaven, of the hard heart, the counsel of the wicked, the seat of scoffers? 
the antidote to that, the humble-hearted person, invests his delight in the law of the Lord, invests himself in meditating day and night on the promises and truths of God. How do we stay humble-hearted? I ask you to evaluate the company you keep. Evaluate the sources of information that you ingest. Who do you give your ear to? Are you giving yourself to to scoffers and skeptics and doubt sowers? Or are you giving yourself to the teachers of the word who are going to help you become like a tree that is prosperous and fruitful in every season? If you are a person who is struggling with doubts, who have questions about the faith, I offer myself to you. Not not that I can promise you that I know the answer to every question you have, but I delight in helping a person journey from doubt to trust. And so if you have questions, I have devoted myself to trying to be one of one of the to be the best academic biblical person I know how to be. And so if you have questions, I would delight in journeying with you towards the solid truth of Scripture. I, I, I would delight in, in dealing with whatever uh, questions of deconstruction or questions of faith that you may have. But it is important that we keep a humble heart Because when we let go of that humble heart, it is not long before the leaven of a hard heart takes over and our ability to respond to Jesus becomes almost impossible. So a heart is kept humble. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of the person who knows Jesus is a mind-seeking understanding. A mind-seeking understanding. Now, Jesus gives this important warning to the disciples about watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, and they totally miss it. What they instead are focused on is the question of bread. They recognize that they've gotten into a boat with Jesus with one loaf of bread, and they're like, we don't have enough bread. What are we going to do? And so when Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus is obviously talking about the problem with the bread, and we need to figure out how we're going to get more more bread, right? And so this is honestly a, a comical passage, because how many times has Jesus dealt with a shortage of bread with these disciples already? Twice, right? And Jesus gives them this powerful warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and the household of Herod, and they don't catch it at all. And so Jesus is dismayed with how lost and oblivious the disciples are that he rattles off eight questions, basically saying eight different ways, are you so dumb? (laughs) That's really what it adds up to. Listen to the eight questions again. Now, he, uh, he says, uh, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 
And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Do you not yet understand? I mean, you can hear the exasperation. Like, how can you be this dim? Right? Jesus is berating them or barraging them with these eight questions. And these eight questions all have the same singular purpose. He is appealing to his disciples to think. Put this together. Use your brains. Quit just watching. Start understanding. He, said, he, he, he talked about their eye. He wants them to see. Their ear. He wants them to hear. Remember, these are all mental activities. He is reviewing the feedings. They see all these things, but they did not apply what they saw. And so Jesus is, is hammering them with the fact that they were not seeking to understand. They were not trying to grow in understanding who Jesus is. And because of that, they're worried about bread. Right? So we recognize the comedy. I mean, those, those idiots, um, how can they be so dim? We recognize the comedy, but, um, but what about us? How much do we say, do we have enough bread when we actually know Jesus better than the disciples? How, how many of us right now have a bread question that is worrying them and taking their sleep away? Some money question, some job question, some... Uh, income question, some provider question, and we are worried how is it going to go. And yet, we know the Jesus who is resurrected. We know the Jesus who is Lord of heaven and earth. Does our faith disappear in crises, in, in uncertainty, in, in temptation? I mean, that's when we start thinking about the bread, right? We start focusing on the bread and the crisis. We start focusing on the bread and the uncertainty. We start focusing on the bread and the temptation, which is a way of saying we forget who we are and whose we are all the time. Why? Because we're just like the disciples, we still don't understand fully who Jesus is. And to be even more pointed, we don't believe fully even in the Jesus that we know. You see, what Jesus wants us to grasp here is that an understanding faith is a growing faith. It should become more personal and more practical each day of our lives. When, I, when I, I talk about knowing Jesus, the question is not, can you answer the catechism question of who Jesus is? That's important. The question is, does your answer involve your heart, involve the knowledge of relationship? 
Our, our knowledge of Jesus is inexhaustible. It is going to grow more personal every day of our lives. Look at the Apostle Paul who wrote in, Philipp, in the letter of Philippians sitting in a prison after having been given divine revelation, after, after having written five to six books that are in the Bible, and sitting in prison at the age of 60, he says in the book of Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Paul, whose school I will check myself into the first day I am in heaven, says, I still have so much more to know. I want only one thing, to know him. Is that spirit of wanting to know him more every day in us? Or do we think we've got our our heaven card stamped? And there's other things that we want to worry about, like bread. Beloved, is the Jesus you know today greater than the Jesus you knew at first? Is the Jesus that you know today a a, a Jesus you know better than you knew a year ago? Can you show that you are knowing him more personally day by day? But it's not just an understanding faith, a growing faith that's more personal. It's also more practical. Look at what the Apostle Peter writes in his very last letter before his martyrdom. He writes to his, his young disciples what you need to devote your life to, to be a life that knows Jesus he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying there is a never-ending journey of growth, of living out the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. How is your knowing him making him known? You see, those two things ought to be happening at about the same speed. If you are knowing him, then your life is going to be making him known. Because Peter says that people will ask about the hope that is within you. And that means you are a People living in the hope of Jesus. So, how is your knowing him making him known? You see, we must 
have a heart that is kept humble, a mind that is seeking understanding. But third, we also must have a spirit awakened by God as as people who know Jesus. So they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And as they're on their way, we, we come to this encounter with a blind person who wants to be healed. And, uh, and, and the healing of this blind person reminds us uh, from, from the last uh, time we uh, preached in Mark of the healing of the deaf person. The healing of the deaf and the healing of the blind are ways that Jesus reveals himself as the Christ. And so certainly uh, this is Jesus showing himself to the blind and to the disciples that, that Jesus is uh, more than just a teacher. But I think we, we need to look at this passage and we need to consider that there may be even a deeper purpose for why this story shows up in this series of verses. And the reason that I think that there is something more going on in this passage is that this moment with the blind person seems to interrupt the conversation that Jesus is having on the way about the, the that starts with the question of not having any bread and then continues when they're up at Caesarea Philippi because there is a, a list of questions that, that uh, start in that, that previous passage and then they continue in the passage that follows. Verse 21 ends with, do you not yet understand and then we are, go into a story where this man uh, is, is healed of his sight and is then now able to see. But there's a key difference. If we notice the passage beforehand, the questions about their dimness, and then the questions of who do you say that I am, there is, there is a difference that happens on the other side of this passage. Suddenly, on the other side of this passage, the disciples have an awareness. They have an insight of who Jesus is. So this is a long way to say we have a story of questions interrupted by a story of a healing. Now, when we've come across interruptions in the Gospel of Mark before, we kind of call those something. They have a name. It's a Markan sandwich, a Markan sandwich. Yes, I think what we are looking here at here is another Markan sandwich. And what I think Mark wants us to see here is that the healing that interrupts the, the dim disciples from the aware disciples is a healing that is designed to parallel the disciples' understanding. And the reason I think we, we can gather that is that this healing is peculiar in that it has two touches. Two touches. Jesus has to touch this man two times. He touches him once and he says, what do you see? And he has kind of this hazy picture. I mean, he can see. He went from blind to seeing something. And then he has to be touched a second time to, to actually see clearly. Now, why two touches? Jesus doesn't touch the man twice because his, his power, you know, he, he, he didn't uh, plug in his miracle uh, battery uh, the night before he went to bed, and so it was only half charged at that moment. That's, that's not what this is. These two touches are illustrating what Jesus is doing also spiritually with the disciples. You see, the, 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 the healing of the blind man is paralleling the spiritual healing God is doing to the disciples. The first touch is very similar to the awakening that the disciples have that Jesus is the Christ. But we'll see pretty soon that Jesus is the Christ 
is only part of the story because almost immediately after that, Jesus calls Peter an agent of Satan because he does not understand that the Christ must suffer and die. There's awareness, there's a, there's a partial understanding when he says Jesus is the Christ, but it awaits the second touch, which is that Christ is also the person who must die and be raised. So it appears as we look at this passage that this healing of the blind person by two touches is paralleling the gradual awareness that God is giving to the disciples of who Jesus is. This is a lot of words to try and show you something in the literary aspect of the book. But if you want to just short-circuit it, Matthew says in, uh, in the same uh, parallel passage, Matthew 16, 16, these words. He says, uh, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus records that the insight that, that Peter has that Jesus is the Christ is an insight that was revealed to him by God the Father who is in heaven. So essentially, Mark uses a passage of a blind man being healed by two touches to show what Matthew just tells. This passage of the healing of the blind person is to show the healing of our spiritual sight uh, that, that, that Matthew shows us with, with just those words. So what I think we need to recognize when we look at this knowing Jesus and we see this passage of the blind person paralleling the dimness of the disciples is this profound theological truth. God must open our eyes spiritually for us to see. God must open our eyes spiritually for us to see Jesus rightly. Uh, you can look at Acts chapter 26, verses 18, where it says, uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Or John 3, 3, John answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, there's a, 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 a work of God that has to happen upon our own ability to see Jesus for us to see him. God must do for us spiritually what Jesus does here for the blind person physically. He has to touch our soul and awaken us to the reality of who Jesus is. So when we see this healing... I think Mark wants the astute reader to say, I'm the blind person. I'm the blind person. And he has healed my spiritual eyes to see Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that knowing him is a gift. The fact that you know Jesus is a gift that you have been given, that is as profound as this blind man being given eyes that can see. Now, let me ask you, what do you think the blind man did with his new eyes? The, the, the story doesn't go on to tell us, but, but I imagine he probably got a nice blindfold and just went back to enjoying being blind again. 
and not looking at the beautiful trees and the beautiful people. And he just, he just enjoyed the darkness. But you, you, beloved, have had your eyes of your soul opened to the glorious truths of God, to the infinite one whose mercy is so rich that it changes all creation, that it makes all things new, that the angels in heaven long to look into it. Your eyes have been miraculously opened to the beauty of the gospel. Are you knowing Jesus with your eyes? Or are you putting a blindfold back on and living with, I know Jesus enough to be saved? Let us use the gift of our spiritual eyes to behold him, to see him, to wonder in him, to worship him. To know him so richly that we want to lay our lives down to be with him. Let us use this gift, beloved. So there's a heart kept humble, a mind seeking understanding, a spirit awakened by God. Fourth, and not least important, is a mouth that professes Jesus is Lord. So this journey up to Caesarea Philippi finally comes to its end. We're at the very top of the, of the map. We're at the hinge point of the gospel. And Jesus' questions continue. And he says, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples rattle off the, the popular answers. Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. And that's, that's great. It's good to hear what the people are saying about Jesus. But then Jesus stops everything and he looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are the Lord. That's the answer that Mark wants all of us to have. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. And Mark wants us to have that by actually in the narrative making this a question that does a remarkable thing. It breaks the fourth wall. You cannot read a question without having to have the question posed to you. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am, you read that as written to you. And so Jesus is saying in this narrative to all people reading these words, who do you say that I am? This question is not just the hinge of the story of the Gospel of Mark. This question is the hinge of the story of every single one of our lives. We are either continuing on a direction away from God, allowing the cement of our heart to turn into concrete, or we answer this question and we turn ourselves to the path of the kingdom, to the path of a relationship with Jesus. 
John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. We know John 3.16, but we need to hear it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, believe in Jesus, you will not perish. But then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, the question, who do you say that I am, only has two answers. You have either answered, he is the Christ, or you have answered, he is not the Christ, and I don't really care. Jesus does not allow a third option for people to say, I haven't thought about it. There are only two. He says, you've already made the decision, I do not have a Savior, until you make the decision that Jesus is your Savior. And so all of us have to answer the question personally. Eternity turns on our answer. Beloved, being near people who believe in Jesus, or being with people who believe in Jesus, or looking like people who believe in Jesus is not enough. We all must answer the question. We all must profess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And today we get to do that by witnessing Jesse take on the the baptism as a way of declaring, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Jesse will be answering that question by baptism. Have you answered the question? Do you know him? Do you want to know him more? Listen, if you want to know him more, I'm not giving you a hard assignment. I'm telling you, it's this simple. If you want to know him more, Ask him. Ask him to reveal himself to you as he promises us in the Gospel of Luke. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus better today than yesterday. I want you to know better, Jesus better next week than you know now. And the way that you can know Jesus is to ask him, show me more. And he delights to answer that prayer. Amen? Let's have a baptism. Let's have a baptism. Jesse, can you come up here, please? This is Jesse. Jesse, how old are you today? I am 18. 18 years old, and uh, you just got your driver's license. All right. 
So this is, uh, what's going to be uh, bigger to you? Your driver's license or your baptism? Oh. <laughs> you might want to go back and sit down. <laughs> Which one? Which the baptism. Baptism, good, good. Well, tell us a little bit why you want to be baptized today. Very good. And um, uh, how, how, how over the last, you've, you've been talking about wanting to get baptized uh, for the last couple of months. So, so tell me some of the things that have happened in your life for the last couple of months that have really made this question for you something you wanted to do now. Uh, I, just, I was just called by on the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. Okay. So, uh, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, representing Christ and all his benefits. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. By the act of baptism, a person becomes a part of the visible church, for it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace for believers. As a sign, it proclaims God's forgiveness and our redemption in Jesus Christ. As a seal, God marks us as adopted children of our Heavenly Father. It indicates our engrafting into Christ, our rebirth, the remission of sins, and our ability by the power of the Spirit to walk in newness of life. That all sounds good, doesn't it? It does. So, Jesse, I'm going to ask you three questions uh, for uh, you to profess your faith in front of your church family this morning. Jesse Harris, is your duty, it is your duty in offering yourself for baptism to answer the following questions. First... Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon Him alone for your salvation as He is offered in the gospel? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you promise to serve Christ and His church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and its ministry to others to the best of your ability. All right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Now for the congregation. Do you, the members of this congregation, you're part of the congregation, and in the name of the visible church of our Lord Jesus Christ, take responsibility for the continued nurture of Jesse Promising to set a godly example by your own life to pray for him in his new life of faith. Very good. All right, Jesse, are you ready? Come over here. Why don't you take a step up without your shoes? Good. Take a step up, step in. Put your feet down here and sit there for a moment. How's that water feel? Warm. Okay. Feels good. All right. Let, let's, let us pray. Father, we just pray that this moment here with Jesse, uh, that it would symbolize a complete union with, with your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone under the waters of judgment, and Jesus has come out in resurrection life. And all who profess their faith in him you unite so that our sins are washed in the grave and our life is tethered to Jesus so that we have eternal life with him.
We pray, Heavenly Father, your blessing upon Jesse. In Jesus we pray, amen. All right, Jesse. I'm going to put one hand here. I'm going to push you back. Are you ready? Jesse Harris. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, elegantly exit (laughs) the baptismal.